Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Hormone Helper podcast. I'm happy to have you back. And if you're new, my name is Christina Emily Campbell. I'm a registered holistic nutritionist and certified personal trainer. My private practice is primarily online, and we help women overcome various health issues while specializing in digestive health. You can learn more all about that at ChristinaEmilyWellness.com. All right, today is a special one. On the podcast, I have Dr. Matt. He has a holistic approach and is passionate about caring for the whole person and getting to the root cause of their health issues instead of just putting a bandage over the symptoms of a condition. His focus is on helping members with hormone imbalances, autoimmune conditions, chronic pain conditions, and diabetes. He mentioned that there is an increasing number of people with complex and chronic conditions and traditional approaches to medicine that don't seem to be making people any healthier. If you're local to Charlotte, you can find him at the Holistic Wellness Center of the Carolinas. All of the information will be provided below so you guys can check that out. Hi, Dr. Matz, and thank you for being a guest on the podcast today. How are you? Uh, I'm doing great. Thank you. And I appreciate being here. I'm glad that you invited me. Thank you so much. So I wanted to dive straight into autoimmune conditions. There's a growing number of people developing these conditions. And for those that don't know what that is, can you briefly just talk about what is simply an autoimmune condition? In an autoimmune condition, the body recognizes or loses the ability to recognize its own tissue versus a foreign tissue. So it could be a virus, it could be a food, whatever. Um, we create antibodies, we go after whatever it happens to be, take a bacteria, for example, and we eradicate it, kill it off so that we don't suffer from the ill effects of whatever that happens to be. In an autoimmune condition, we look at ourselves with the same angst as we would a bacteria and we go after it, trying to destroy it. And you can create an autoimmune condition or have an autoimmune condition rather to pretty much any tissue in your body. And as soon as the immune system starts to say, you know, this joint cartilage doesn't look so good to me. I don't think it should be here. Let's create some antibodies to go after it and destroy it. Uh, you've created an autoimmune condition after your joint cartilage. Take, for example, rheumatoid arthritis. Mm-hmm. So there's not, um, it is predominantly, unfortunately, a female-based population that deals with autoimmune conditions, almost two to one uh, for every one male that has an autoimmune condition, there's going to be two other females that suffer from an autoimmune-based condition. Is there any reason why, or that's just the way the statistics are showing? It's just the way the statistics are. Um, They don't know what causes it. There's a lot of hypotheses as far as what could be the underlying nature as to why some folks will develop autoimmune conditions and why some folks won't. Okay. As I said, predominantly, it's a female-based population. Typically, it's going to be during childbearing years. So mid to late teens, all the way up until premenopause. And it could be a genetic base. It could be food base. It could be you got a virus and that virus looks really close to your skeletal muscle. And now because you're making antibodies to go after that virus and that virus has been taken care of, you've still got those antibodies circulating around in your body. And now it turns around and it goes after your skeletal muscle. So there's not necessarily... Um, a true, this is the known cause as to why some folks develop autoimmune conditions. But unfortunately, if you've got one, you're at a significantly greater risk of developing another. About 25% of folks with one autoimmune condition are going to develop another one. Just because once your immune system gets out of whack and start loses, losing the ability to recognize and differentiate itself between something foreign, that snowball gets rolling downhill very quickly and can spiral out of shape really fast. 
So for those that have a relative or a mom that has an autoimmune condition, does their chance potentially increase? Because I do hear some clients will say, I'm a little fearful or afraid because my mom has lupus or is hypothyroid. Is there a chance that I'll get it or it's passed down? That's a good question. There hasn't been any direct genetic correlation, at least that I've been able to read or find. Um, I think what you're dealing with is, again, it's predominantly a female-based condition any sort of autoimmune condition. So they're just relating the fact that, well, mom had it and I'm a female. So because mom had it, I'm at an increased risk. And really the only risk that's there is the fact that you're a female and mom was a female. Now there are certain things, however, back to like different triggers that there can be that would be more familial passed down traits, like diet, for example. You, we learn our diet from mom and dad. And if mom had a bad diet, then that bad diet gets passed on to you. And that diet could have triggered mom's autoimmune condition. And therefore, that same trait is going to inhabit itself in you. And that your bad diet that you picked up from mom causes the same thing that happened in mom. Right. And is there any other kind of root cause that you guys can come down to that you notice at your clinic? Or do you notice any changes in the gut microbiome that's similar between those that have autoimmune conditions or any correlation without, there? Yeah, without question, there's a definite correlation between having leaky gut or loss of oral tolerance and the development of autoimmune conditions for the exact reason that your body is consistently being bombarded with what it takes to be foreign proteins because the gut microbiome, gut lining or tight junctions are breaking down. And all of the stuff that is in your gastrointestinal tract leaches and leaks into us. Our immune system recognizes it and says, hey, this isn't supposed to be here. Creates a whole bunch of antibodies after, to go after it. But because the protein structure now we're dealing with food, we're dealing with animal proteins, plant proteins, looks so similar to our own protein it's really easy for the immune system to get confused, especially when it's stressed. So if we're not eating right, if we're not exercising, if we're not getting plenty of sleep, if we're stressed because of everything that's going on in the world around us, it weakens our body's ability to recognize and differentiate something that is ourself versus something that is foreign. And leaky gut is almost always one of those potential underlying factors, or if not underlying factors, at least a comorbidity that goes along with a lot of autoimmune conditions. And can you, do you guys do leaky gut testing at your clinic? And if so, or if there's a way that if there, other people can test it, whether it's at home or if they go into a clinic such as yours, um, so they would know whether they have it. And also second part to that is any other preventative measures people can take to not get there. Sure. Easiest way to, so from a at home, diagnose yourself with leaky gut. If you get different weird responses to different foods, or if you eat Tuesday night, you have dinner and you have without problem. And then you have Tuesday dinner again, Wednesday for lunch. You're like, geez, I, I just don't feel well. Leaky gut certainly needs to be on the table because you've just inundated yourself with Tuesday's dinner, whatever that happens to be. You've got an immune response to it because of leaky gut. And now because your immune system is already ramped and primed to go after whatever dinner happened to be, and now you give it that same exposure again, Wednesday lunch, your immune system is already on top of it. So you could get symptoms such as headache, fatigue, joint pain, discomfort, weird skin rashes, things along those lines that you didn't get the first time, but because it's a repeat exposure, your immune system is giving you a physical manifestation of a symptom that, hey, this is, this is what's going on. That would be the easiest thing from like an at-home test, so to speak. Yeah. In the clinic, we do food allergy, food sensitivity panel testing. Uh, 
it goes through Cyrex labs and they've got different, they call them arrays, different tests that look at different things ranging anywhere from 24 predominantly dairy and grain based foods all the way up to over a hundred foods, food additives, colorants, sugars, sweeteners, artificial things that are going to make up an American diet. And depending upon how many things, and it, they're looking for an immune response within the testing. So they're looking to see, does your immune system or does your body create antibodies that are going after lemons or limes or green peppers or a medium rare steak or tuna, whatever the case happens to be. And if you are, and you're producing a lot of antibodies that are going after a lot of food, the assumption being that the only way that your immune system could recognize these many proteins or these many foods is if it's consistently seeing them on a regular basis. And the only way that's possible is something like leaky gut or loss of oral tolerance. And how can people strengthen either their immune system? Just so even when it comes to like food sensitivities, one of the things that I hear as well very often is if they'll take a food sensitivity test and they get a list of things back that they believe that they can never eat those foods again and they have to be very careful. So can you touch on food sensitivities, what that means and how to strengthen, whether it's their gut or their immune system, how it's, I mean, it's correlated anyways, but right. um, just the connection there. Sure. So Food sensitivity, especially like the testing that we were talking about, you've got like an IgE allergy to peanuts. You're going to get anaphylaxis, you're going to get hives, you're going to get EpiPen. Like you know you've got a big problem just because of how acute that exposure is. When you're talking about food sensitivities or an IgA or an IgG-mediated allergy, the symptoms can be so subtle that you don't necessarily equate the food that you've eaten to with the pain that you experience in your legs or the swelling that you're getting in your ankles or the subtle headache every evening around six o'clock after you've just eaten dinner. Mm -hmm. And depending upon what foods and what triggers there are and how many of them there are, the easiest thing to either heal your gut so that you don't have to deal with this problem moving forward is create diversity. We are creatures of habit. We consistently are doing, we have like our foods and these are the foods that we're comfortable with, whatever they happen to be. And if you looked collectively over a three to four week time frame, you're probably going to see a lot of these foods recurrently showing up within your diet, whether they be a handful of almonds as a snack or apple every morning with breakfast or a bowl of oatmeal, whatever the case happens to be. It is that type of thing that slowly over the course of time, your body just gets tired of, I'm tired of seeing the same thing. And especially with the way that food's being mass produced now, we're eating more refined foods than ever. We're eating more genetically modified foods than ever we're eating out more than ever we've kind of lost that farm to table so to speak cultivating and growing things in our own backyard and, and eating them and because of that the health of the gut the health of the microbiome is without question certainly suffered so a good pre and probiotic creating diversity making sure that you're not eating the same things over and over and over again and then trying to get kind of as close to i was using adage if you could grow or kill it in your backyard it's probably something that you should be eating if it falls outside of that category, goldfish, there's no goldfish tree. So you probably shouldn't <laughs> goldfish because you can't grow it or kill it in your backyard. So getting back to what common sense would say is a good, well-balanced, healthy diet. Awesome. And any other tips for creating like a perfect plate? Um, I know sometimes it seems like common sense, but you know what I mean? When you see people's plates, it's, it's not always. So any tips for just making sure that they're getting enough of essential fatty acids and their, you know, their fiber and whatnot, just general tips there. 
the general tip, and, I, and this really hits a, a big piece, is that there's no perfect diet. Right. There is the perfect diet for you. And everybody is different. I can speak on my own, my own house. I've got my wife. I've got three children, one of which is a baby. So she really doesn't count. But the two older ones, like we all eat different things because we all need different things. And we all feel differently after we're done eating. Like tonight we sat down, my, my daughter had her meal, my son had his meal, my wife had her meal, and I had my meal. Some of them, like the fruits and the vegetables and things along those lines, we share and similar, but I don't like a whole bunch of protein. I would rather have like a rice or quinoa or something along those lines. My wife needs protein because she's breastfeeding and she needs that replenishment of her nutrients. So try to, obviously I'm not sitting here saying if you've got five people in your house, you need to create five different dinners. But recognizing what you feel good with and what you don't feel good with and using that as your framework for this is your diet. And if you stick to these guidelines, you're going to be in pretty good shape. And then also following common sense stuff, like you need healthy fats, avocados, coconut oils, fish. You need to make sure that you're getting a carbohydrate source, whether that be a potato or rice or quinoa, some sort of fruit, vegetable, creating diversity within the colors that you're getting. So it's not just always carrots, not just always corn green peppers, green beans, broccoli, cauliflower, just creating a whole bunch of different colors on the plate. Um, and that's, that's really, if you, if you do that, you're going to be in good shape. You can't go wrong. Perfect. And I think you, you nailed it there too. Just the diversity of, and going back to the sensitivities that you're talking about, we, we are creatures of habit. And I notice even for us as well, we have our go-to grocery list and our go-to things in the pantry and whatnot that are our favorites. And I mean, I have a one and a half year old son and I mean, and an infant as well. I mean, she's only having milk right now, but even with my son, we have our go-tos and it's always important and vital to make sure that we're rotating our foods. So, I mean, that just filling up with different colors and different grains and things is so important. Dr. Matz, I'd like to jump into the thyroid with you. This is another really common area um, and also a kind of a gray space where people are a little bit unclear about. Now, can we talk a little bit about hypothyroidism versus Hashimoto's? What is the difference? Does someone have one and not the other? How does one lead into the other? That's a common question that we're faced with. Sure. I first, and, and this is always a big thing. Um, I don't answer the phone at the clinic, but the staff answers the phone. And the most commonly framed question is, I'm, I feel like I have a hypothyroid problem. I have all the symptoms. I'm losing my hair in, in globs. I'm gaining weight. I have no energy. I'm a nervous, emotional wreck. I don't feel good. But I go to my doctor and they run TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone, the kind of hallmark thyroid marker out there. And they're like, it's normal. You don't have a thyroid problem. And then they get frustrated and they continue to hound and they keep going back or maybe they go to the endocrinologist and eventually they're just being told, you know, it's your, your marker is fine. TSH is normal. It's all in your head. Maybe you should go see a psychiatrist. Maybe you should take this anti-anxiety medicine. Maybe you should take this antidepressant. And it's, we do talks in the clinic to help educate people within the Charlotte community and within the U S and all over the world. And there's this always a, one of my favorite talks is on the thyroid because there's this aha moment. And the aha moment for folks is realizing and recognizing what TSH is. TSH stands for thyroid stimulating hormone. And it's exactly that. It's a stimulating hormone. Mm -hmm. It's a conversation from your brain to your thyroid gland to do something. That's it. It doesn't tell you whether your thyroid gland is listening. doesn't tell you whether your body is using your thyroid hormone. doesn't tell you whether you're even making any thyroid hormone. All it is is a communication. It's a talk from your brain 
to your thyroid gland with the assumption being that if TSH is normal, two things have happened. Your brain's working and your thyroid gland is listening and doing what it's supposed to do. Terrible assumption to be made, especially when you're dealing with something as complex as the thyroid. You can think of a number of different examples where the brain says one thing, body doesn't listen. Spinal cord injury is an easy one. Your brain can be talking to your toes to move. But if you've got a spinal cord injury and that connection has been severed, you can tell your feet to move all day long. Nothing's going to happen. So when folks are going initially to their primary care doctors or to their endocrinologists and they're running TSH and they're being told, nope, everything looks good. You don't have a thyroid problem. The only thing they have confirmation of is that your brain's working, which I can tell you your brain's working if you're up walking around and you drove yourself to the office. So you, and you need to dig a little bit deeper. But to answer your question most directly, hypothyroidism is a condition. Hashimoto's is a subset of that condition. And Hashimoto's is autoimmune thyroiditis, which means you're producing antibodies to go after your thyroid gland for the same reason that we discussed earlier in an autoimmune state, your immune system got confused. Your immune system that decided that that thyroid gland looks pretty tasty and it's going to create antibodies to go after it. And slowly over the course of time, you're gobbling up that thyroid gland and you're going to have less today than you had yesterday. You have more today than you're going to have tomorrow. And it's just a slow downward spiral. The triggers that we often see are going to be environmental. So some sort of viral infection that you got. Epstein-Barr is always a big one. Yeah. Food trigger, gluten and dairy, because both of those food proteins cross-react or mimic very similarly the structure of the thyroid gland. So if you're creating antibodies to go after gluten because you just gorged yourself with a whole bunch of beer, pizza, pasta, and bread, and now you've made antibodies to go after all that food that you've just eaten, and now you've removed that food, those antibodies are still there. And they're still looking for something to do. And that thyroid gland all of a sudden looks pretty appetizing. Hmm. And then stress, stress is the last one. Immune system gets confused. It needs something to do, and off it goes. From a diagnostic standpoint, you need three things. You need lab low TSH. I'm sorry, lab high TSH signaling the brain is screaming to your thyroid gland, make more hormone because we do not have enough. You need thyroid globulin and thyroid peroxidase antibodies. And you need an ultrasound to see the damage being caused by your immune system to the thyroid gland. Now, if you've got lab high TSH, and you've got thyroid globulin and thyroid peroxidase antibodies, I, you can save yourself some time in eliminating the ultrasound because you're going to see damage. But from a what you need based upon the diagnostic criteria, you need those three things. Right. Now, do you believe, or from what you see, can hypothyroidism, let's say, let's start there, can it be cured? And can it be cured via diet and exercise? Or do you believe that you need some kind of either herb supplementation or other kind of intervention of help? That's a good question. When I hear cured, I think you're taking something that was once screwed up and you're turning it back to the way that it was before it was screwed up, which is not the case. Once mm -hmm. you have Hashimoto's, you've got it. Now you can support your immune system. You can get it calmed down. You can have it so that it is not going after your thyroid gland anymore by making good choices, by making sure you've got a well-balanced diet, by eliminating known triggers, gluten, dairy, by making sure that you're managing your stress well. And you'll do great. But if you, for whatever reason, decide, you know, I'm, I'm going off the gluten-free, dairy-free bandwagon. I'm going to not manage my stress well. I am not going to get enough sleep. 
that autoimmune condition that you were able to suppress through your lifestyle, it's going to come right back. So a, a curable, no. Once you've got it, you've got it. Same with any autoimmune condition. But that does not mean that you can't support it from a natural lifestyle empowered way so that you can get things working and functioning the way that they were intended to before you had this condition and problem. Supplementation gets you there faster. Um, and that's one of the things that all the supplements that we use in our office, which we are big on supplements, are food-based. They're coming from plants. They're coming from herbs, things along those lines, because the goal is being make good choices, get your body functioning properly, and then you can eliminate the supplement because you've got the food replacing it that you're eating because you know what you're supposed to do. Right. So, and I know, I know some people are probably thinking, well, let's say that they, I have hypothyroidism. I'm just going to have a little bit of dairy here and there because I can't live without it. Or is that the little bit of gluten once a week going to kill me? Any tips or suggestions on that? Is it a once and for all, just cut it out? Is a little bit okay? Um, anything there? Yeah. The biggest thing that I see with that one is people are going to respond differently. And as with anything, you take something really off topic, alcoholism, like once you recognize the fact that you've got a problem with alcohol, you're making a conscious decision, you're not going back. Right. Reason being, you can just have one drink, but you know that one drink is eventually going to turn into two because you're going to make the excuse, oh, I just had one, what's two? Yeah, well said. And the same thing's going to happen with gluten. No, I just had that piece of pizza yesterday. What's another piece today? It's left over in the refrigerator. I want to eat it. I don't want to throw it away. I just had that chocolate chip cookie. What's another one? And you can make good choices and good decisions over the course of six months. But if you start making bad choices and making the excuse, oh, it's just one time. Oh, I'm at a party. Oh, there's no other options because I didn't plan ahead. It's going to slowly spiral your way right back into where you were before. And the research is out there that shows from a gut standpoint, an inflammatory standpoint, one exposure to gluten, especially if you've been avoiding it. It's going to cause about six months worth of damage. It's going to cause six months worth of recovery for your gut to go back to the way that it was just so with one exposure months, to gluten. That's a lot. That's a lot of time. Yes. So it's, it's one of those, I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, you have to do it my way. You have to do it this way. I think my way is pretty good. Um, I am able to help or we as a clinic are able to help folks that have been told like you're stuck with this. Right. Um, but it's got to come from a willingness and desire and motivation to want to change, be willing to change. And you can do it from an entirely lifestyle-based perspective. Now, I know there's a couple other questions I know that um, clients have asked, and I'm going to bounce some off of you as well for those listening. And one is those that take um, medication like levothyroxine, well, could they ever be taken off of it once they make these improvements? And is there a way to do it? Or if they work with you, let's say, um, and your supplementation that you have there, can they slowly come down in their medication? Is it kind of a battle with the blood work and making sure that their levels are okay? Is there a way around that? The battle necessarily isn't with the blood work. The battle is what is either the prescribing physician, um, primary care doctor, endocrinologist, because they are very set in their ways. They don't want to necessarily hear other ways or alternatives to the recommendation, especially coming from somebody that's practicing something alternative and not mainstream, traditional, if you will. Um, but with that said, yeah, we've seen it all, all the time where people have come off of levothyroxine, come off of Synthroid. They're doing it through supplementation. They're doing it from lifestyle. And if they can't accomplish that, they're at least decreasing their dose because their body is starting to function and work.
there's armor, there's nature toid, both natural products as opposed to synthetic products. And armor, I'm sorry, Synthroid and Levothyroxine, one of the ingredients in them is talc. And they've shown that talc causes cervical cancer. And you're giving a population that's predominantly female-based a medication with an ingredient that is going to hit an entirely female population. Yeah, I appreciate females, you bringing that up, actually. Thank you. Males aren't going to have to worry about cervical cancer. Females are. And you're dealing with the, with the, with the medication who the lawsuits have started where they're already starting to pay out um, lawsuits because of folks taking levothyroxine, taking Synthroid that have talc in them. Now, in terms of, I'm just going to jump forward, in terms of hypothyroid patients and stubborn weight loss, I hear that often. Any tips there for those that are just not able to crack the scale or notice any changes or measurements in their waist to hip ratio? Sure. I will stand by this until somebody can prove me wrong that it's, it, it is entirely simple when you're looking to lose weight. It's calories in versus calories out. Given that, everything is working properly. And obviously, if you're dealing with a hypothyroid problem, then everything's not working properly. So if you can get that working better, if you can get it working the way or that it is meant to and everything, and you can look at TSH is normal. Your thyroid gland is working. You're creating the thyroid hormone. You're converting it into the active thyroid hormone. You're binding it to the cell and it's doing everything that it's supposed to do. Then at least you know that you've eliminated that as a potential underlying reason as to why you're not losing weight. The other piece then that needs to be brought into this is cortisol, the stress hormone, adrenal function, adrenal fatigue, if you will. Because once you screw up cortisol, you are indirectly screwing up the thyroid just based upon how closely those two mirror one another. Yep. Cortisol is going to depress the production of TSH. Cortisol is going to decrease the conversion of T4 to T3. And cortisol is going to impact the binding of T3 at the receptor. So we'll see it a lot where folks will come in and we'll run some labs. TSH is normal. T4 to T3 is normal, but the binding of it is terrible. And they've got kind of the weight distribution that would suggest that they've got a cortisol or adrenal problem right around the midsection. I'm like, here's the problem. If you can't manage your stress, if you can't get cortisol balanced and regulated better, you're fighting a losing battle. It's going to be entirely uphill. You're not going to see the results that you want to because, again, like I said, the whole calories in versus calories out thing doesn't work anymore because you're impacting directly a hormone that's going to regulate and maintain metabolism in a negative way, and you're never going to get around that. Now, tips for decreasing stress. And I know you can also let me know your thoughts on um, – weight-bearing exercises and weightlifting for those that actually enjoy it, but does that cause physical stress to the body and can that be counterproductive or would you be recommending it um, as a form of exercise for someone with hypothyroid? S stress. So stress, three types of stress, emotional, chemical, and physical. So everybody, when we think of stress, we think of emotional and you, and you brought up a really good one and thank you for doing so and that physical stress is a huge piece. Not same as diet, not all exercises created equal. Weight bearing exercise may be great for some folks, may be terrible for others. Endurance training, going for a walk, going for a run or a jog may be great for some folks, might be terrible for others. So you've got to figure out what exercise is right for you. And you'll know what exercise is right for you based upon your recovery. If you go to the gym and you lift weights and you spend 45 minutes doing a circuit workout, and Friday of the same week you are still sore from Monday's workout, you did the wrong workout. You lifted too heavy, you went too long, you may not even need to be lifting weights and you need to find some other mode of exercise because all you've done 
while trying to do something good for yourself with Monday's workout is create a tremendous amount of physical stress that is taken up to and potentially longer than five days for your body to recover from. So you're totally working against yourself by doing something that outwardly appearing would be a good thing because you're doing the wrong thing for you. So, so you're saying a great, sorry to interrupt you, but a great way to realize is based on recovery time, that's good in terms of the like physical stress. Absolutely correct. If you work out 24 to 48 hours, you should not be sore from a workout any longer than 48 hours. And if you are, if you did it too hard, it's the wrong type. And rest assured, you created a tremendous amount of physical stress that your body is going to suffer from. Now it may recover in the next seven days if you do everything that you can to help mitigate that stress, plenty of rest, good diet, things along those lines. But if you work out on Monday and you're back in the gym on Tuesday and you're there on Wednesday and you take off Thursday and you get Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, creating so much physical stress that your body is not going to be able to recover from it. You can probably see these folks at the gym, like the ones that are always there for three or four hours yeah. that you'll, you'll hear the stories of, or, or maybe they're friends of yours are like, I'm just, I can't seem to get that number on the scale to move. And if anything, it's moving in the wrong direction, but I'm here all the time. I'm eating well, I'm doing everything the common sense would say you should be doing, but it's because you're not managing the physical stress that's being caused by that exercise. There you go. And I wanted to touch on adrenal fatigue, that being, since we're talking about stress and that being such a big one, cortisol levels and whatnot. Now, straight at it, how often do you see this issue? Is it something that you would even have to test for? Or do you automatically kind of not, I can't even say make the assumption because we don't do that, but can you based on symptoms and issues that you would suspect that someone has adrenal fatigue? The biggest one is if you sleep eight hours or even 10 hours and you wake up and you're like, man, I wish I could just roll back over and go to sleep and you can fall dead asleep for another three, four hours and wake up still tired. You've got an adrenal problem. So if, if those are symptoms that you're suffering from, again, you don't want to assume anything, but that's a pretty telltale sign that something is wrong from a hormonal standpoint that is causing you to be so tired. Cortisol has a circadian rhythm to it, so it's not a flat line. It's not static. It changes through the course of the day depending upon what's going on. Yeah. So it should be the highest when you wake up in the morning because it's a signal to the brain to wake up. So if you're waking up and you're like, geez, I'm exhausted, and you kind of push through and you power through, but you never get that kind of that stride. You hit your stride through the course of the day or you get your second wind. I'm like, no, nah, this is not so bad and you're just dog tired all day long, and it's a total slog, and you go home, and you go to bed, and you wake up, and you repeat the same thing, you're suffering with some sort of an adrenal problem, because you're not getting that spike in cortisol to tell your brain to wake up. Now, obviously, you can objectify that by doing different panels. There's hormone panels. You can look at cortisol. You can look at the stimulating hormone to cortisol, ACTH. You can do it in blood. You can do it in saliva, different manners to which you can test, but the simple one is you sleep eight to 10 hours, and you're not ready to get up that should be kind of that warning sign that there might be an issue here. And cortisol is always a really good underlying factor to look at to see if that's not one of the contributing factors. Now, I also have seen many people just uh, hop into the supermarket and grab some adrenal fatigue supplements and whatnot. And it's not obviously the best route. And in, in kind of um, bringing that together, they'll say that it's just not realistic to make so many lifestyle changes all at once. It's overwhelming. It's just not going to happen. What are some basic tips? And I know everybody's different, but just a way to start de-stressing a little bit just to help with that. If they say, you know, you know what, I 
do wake up in the morning exhausted. I need my cup of coffee to get the day going. I come home, I'm still exhausted. I can't wait to get to bed. It's just a vicious cycle. What are some basic tips to just start somewhere? A, a good place to start is in two places. And coffee is a really important one. If you're taking caffeine to get yourself through the day, yeah, you need it. But at the same time, you're doing the exact opposite of what you would want to do because you're just lighting those matches out of the matchbox because caffeine stimulates the adrenals. And if they're already tired, they're just kind of trying to churn out just a little bit because caffeine is stimulating. If you can go without coffee for two weeks, I would almost guarantee that you're going to feel so much better with so much more energy. We hear it all the time from patients where the majority of folks that we have as patients will go through a 30-day detox. And one of the things on that detox is you avoid caffeine. The first week, first week and a half, two weeks tops, pretty miserable. And granted, you got all the withdrawal symptoms. You've got the headaches, the fatigue, the lethargy, everything that's going to go on without having caffeine. Once you get out of that two weeks, patients are amazed. like, I never thought that would have as much energy as I have without caffeine because I have way more than I ever did when I was drinking a cup of coffee with breakfast, a cup of coffee with lunch, one in the middle of the afternoon to get me through rush hour home, cook dinner so I can get ready to go to bed because it just feels so much better. The other thing is recognizing and making time for yourself. We're in such a busy society and it's all about go, go, go and performance and get things done that we don't take, even if it's just 15 minutes to put away the phone, turn out the lights, don't look at the blue lights. Just if nothing else, just sit there and do nothing. You've got a newborn, so this might be kind of hit home with you. Uh, Right before I was talking with you, I was upstairs um, giving my um, daughter a bottle from the breast milk that my wife had pumped earlier today. It was like 15 minutes of me just sitting there with my eyes closed feeding her because one hand is holding her, the other hand is holding a bottle, so I can't be holding the phone. It's just an opportunity to, I, I prepared for this, for this talk with you. Like, what, what do I want to hit on? What are the questions that she's likely to ask? What are the message? What's the message that I want to get across to folks? There's just that time of reflection. Like, I, I, after 15 minutes, like, I feel so much better. My mind is clear. I'm ready to go because I eliminated all of that outside stress. That's true. I even recommend to clients as well, when you're driving to work, I know that you're, you're doing something, you're kind of multitasking, but you shouldn't be on your phone. Your hands should be on your wheel. Use it as a time of reflection, turn the radio off and the music off and just think and appreciate and, you know, set the tone for the day and just simply reflect. It's just to be more mindful and aware of the, the moment and the space that you're in. So that's great advice. And Dr. Matz, just to wrap up and first thank you for all of this information tonight. Is there any last message that you'd like to give everybody? Um, and also, do you guys have any upcoming local webinars or online webinars or local seminars that you'd like to inform them? Um, we have different webinars on different topics. It's as simple as going to the website. There's a link on there that you can book a phone call with one of the staff. They'll send you the webinar. You can get more information either on the website or talking to a live person. Um, We have an upcoming talk, not this week, but next Wednesday. I would love to be able to tell you the topic. I just don't know. Um, I think it's probably changing based upon all the things um, within the the world that are happening right now. I think we're going to do something that's kind of more pressing to current events as opposed to just general information, hormones, weight loss, thyroid things along those lines. Um, So we're in the process of writing and and compiling and composing that. And the the big takeaway, I guess, and and, and I mentioned this a lot with all of my patients, is that everybody's a unique individual. Nothing is cooking cutter. What works for one person is not going to work for another. And it's all about 
figuring out what you need, what's going to allow your body to be supported and figuring out what is causing the one symptom or the 25 different conditions that you have. And if you can get to the root of the problem and figure out commonalities of, yeah, you've got 25 different diagnoses, 25 different symptoms, but how many similarities do these share? And can we whittle it down maybe from 25 down to four? And if we can get these four systems functioning and working properly, those other 25 things go away. And it's really exciting to allow people to have the life, the wellness, the vitality that they're looking for, that they've just been poo-pooed through the traditional system time and time again, where it's all in your head. Don't worry about it. Your labs are normal. It's part of getting old. Just recognize the fact that you're not 25 anymore. Um, we're able to change lives on a daily basis by empowering people to take care of themselves and educating them on this is what you need to do for yourself. Don't pay attention to all this other noise that's going on around you. You're a unique individual. You need this set of unique things to make sure that you're functioning and working properly. And it all gets down to doing the right test, looking at it with the right lens, being able to combine all of these different things into one piece that allows people to have the success that they get with us. That's awesome. You could not have said that better. Dr. Matz, thank you again so much for your time this evening. And oh, I appreciate being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And I'll put all the information for those listening. I'll put all the information below so you guys could check them out as well. Thanks again, Dr. Matz, and have a great evening. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye.